What's up guys, it's Heather here and I'm back with another episode of my Strike Boat podcast audiobook. Today we're going to listen to part two of chapter three, but first uh, thank you for joining me today. Uh, get a little notification saying that there are a number of you that are listening along, so welcome and uh, Please consider subscribing. It does uh, help the channel spread and don't forget to share. But uh, for now, I just want to say wherever you are, I hope you're having a good day and uh, many blessings on you as we go into chapter three, part two here on January 12th, 2022. Chapter three, part two. Jenna stared at the digital time display on the TV while her assistant, Mary, flipped through the channels. It was 9.45 a.m. Hey, Mare, Jenna said calmly, despite the horror show trembling that was going on inside her. She knew something was wrong. She could feel it, and the quake hadn't helped. She wanted out of that office, wanted to bolt, to be outside. What time did you say that reporter was supposed to be here? 9.30, said Mary, distractedly. I'll go give him a call. Mary crossed to her desk. On the TV screen, the 24-hour CBC news feed was showing a teaser at the Fallon Auto Plant outside of town. Hey, Vic, check it out. It's work. Deb smacked Vic on the arm. Vic stood up and peered at the screen, which was showing the front of the Fallon Automotive Plant. Holy cow, you're right, it is. There's the smoke pit. Look, there's Murray Cheltenham sneaking a butt. His wife's going to be pissed she sees this. He told her he quit. The news story offered a welcome distraction from the fear that was spiraling around inside of her, and Jenna forced herself to concentrate. What's the news doing at the Fallon plant? Deb rolled her eyes. The big man himself is coming, Lawrence Fallon. He's supposed to be getting an award for saving the world on account of how environmentally friendly the cars we make are. Huh, Jenna said evenly, giving a small nod. In her mind, the images of the disfigured and malformed turtles she had studied swam up to the surface, but she pushed them back down. At the desk, Mary was flipping through her date book. She found the right entry, then picked up the phone and dialed. Conversation in the room died down as everyone watched the newscast. Jenna's feeling of unease was growing. Things seemed hyper-real all of a sudden, like unrelated elements in her life were slowly converging. She felt helpless to do anything more than hang on for the ride. Going deeper into that thought, she realized it was almost like she was existing in this moment on two levels. On the one, here and now, She was outwardly calm, sitting around a tray of brownies, watching the news with some friends, while on another level, in her mind, she was stuck in the memory of a dream in which she stood waist-deep in a lake of dead bodies, one element of which has already come true, she thought, remembering the brown envelope. Internally, on an instinctive level, her intuition was strongly broadcasting that they were in danger but she didn't know why or what to do about it. On the surface level, in her everyday self, her Mayor Walter self, her persona, she was struggling very hard to maintain her composure because the mayor couldn't just go running off screaming, now could she, 
flailing about with her arms above her head and babbling incoherently that something felt wrong. But on the inner level, in her true heart, Jenna knew. She knew it in every fiber of her being, where her instincts thrummed on high alert. She fought an interior battle for calm, and calm won. To stay calm, she would have to combine both levels, react to the fear while maintaining her composure. She took a deep breath. The scene on the news feed shifted. A frazzled reporter stood at what looked like a collapsed bridge. We're in Wyerton, where a massive earthquake has caused damage to the bridge north of town. A fissure has opened up. A chasm and the road to the northern Bruce Peninsula has been severed. The cold fear inside of her twisted her stomach. This thing is even bigger than I thought, was what came to her. And then a smaller, quieter thought followed. Yes. She could hear Mary talking. Hello? You're breaking up. Are you there? There's a crackle on the line. I can't hear you. Excuse me? Mary held the phone away from her, squinted at it, then put it back to her ear while blocking her other ear with a finger to hear better. Another story? Breaking? Look, we're waiting. Mary held the phone out again and scowled at it, then put it back on its cradle. He hung up, said there was another story he had to get to. The line was all distorted. I could barely hear him anyway. He said he'd be here as soon as he could. She came back over and sat down. What did I miss? Some kind of damage up in Wyerton, said Jay. Bridge collapsed. Road to the north of the Bruce has been severed. Mary gave a low whistle. That's quite a scene. The internal Jenna, the one who was fighting for calm, watched this unfold from a distance. She was distracted because a notification had sounded from her cell phone inside her pocket. It was the chime for an incoming email. She drew her phone out and scrolled to her inbox. There was a little red message icon to indicate a new message, and she clicked it. Cynthia Jennings, she muttered, trying to think. Why do I know that name? She opened the email. There were a couple of attachments. One was a Word doc called Minutes, and the other was a PowerPoint file called Evac Zone. The message in the body of the email itself was brief. Dear Flag Board, attach, please find the minutes and materials from this morning's meeting. Thanks, Cynthia Jennings. She scanned the list of emails in the address bar. Lawrence Fallon's name stood out to her and a few others. What was her name doing in an email with the likes of them? She frowned. And exactly what are they calling the evac zone? Curiosity got the better of her. She opened the PowerPoint, the same one a man named Anderson Arthur had just presented only moments before to a shadowy cartel of billionaires that posed as a humanitarian charity. There was a cover slide called Manico Fracking Damage. She clicked through the slides as shock drained the color from her face. Advancing slowly, carefully, she learned about the small-scale frack bores peppering the region and the damage they had caused. She saw the slide about the damage at Wyerton, a scene that she herself had just watched on the morning news. In disbelief, she watched in horror the story that the slides told that a flood was coming to the area with the red circle around it on the map that was labeled Evac Zone the circle in which she sat approximately at the center of right at that very moment. 
when she got to the slide depicting the nuclear plant, the cold chill that had been stalking her all morning worsened. The last images from her dream came back to her, the mushroom clad. She couldn't help it. She put the phone down and squeezed her eyes shut, pressed her fists against them hard, but the image of the pinkish-green mushroom cloud rising into the dark sky was still there, imprinted on the backs of her eyelids. She opened her eyes and looked at the TV screen again, panic bats of fear flapping their wings in her heart. The newscast had gone back to the Wyerton story. On the screen, a rivulet of rocks ran down the cliff face, continuing their flow down into the bay on the east side of the Bruce Peninsula. The fissure that had opened up there was widening. Numb, she picked up her phone and stared at it, clicked back one more time through the slides that explained that the Bruce was going to fall, that a fault line had appeared under the bedrock. Then she looked back up at the TV screen where something like that happening appeared well within the range of possible scenarios. Tears prickled the backs of her eyes. She clapped a hand over her mouth as the truth of it slammed home and resonated through her body. The dread she'd been feeling all day was real, and this was the cause of it. Southwestern Ontario was going to flood, to rise up like a big giant wave of black water that would chase her, swirl about her thighs just the way it had in her dream that had ended with dead bodies and a nuclear explosion. There would be casualties, lots of them. The events depicted in the slideshow she was looking at were true. She knew intuitively that they were. First, the brown envelope from her dream had shown up, and now this. She closed her eyes, leaned her head back against the backrest of the couch. Breathe, said the voice in her heart. It's all right, just breathe. You're here for a reason, and you're going to get through this. Jenna felt twin tears leap from beneath her closed eyelids. I hope so, she thought. Inside her office at the flag headquarters, Cynthia Jennings was shaking. She knew she had fucked up and big time. It had been when the gunshot went off. She had flinched. Her fingers had spasmed on the mouse. That was all. Just a knee-jerk reaction, really, prompted by the sound of the gunshot. But a flinch nonetheless, and she'd hit the send button prematurely without meaning to. Her intention had been to double-check. She always double-checked before sending, but this time she'd flinched and hit the send button without having had a chance to double-check that the email addresses were correct, and they hadn't been, because now here it was, an error. Walter Jennings, her billionaire father, the one who had groomed her for a spot on the flag board because he didn't have a son to hand it down to his email handle was genwall316 at live.com, but that was not exactly what she had typed in. She had entered genwall313 by accident, typing too fast, too efficiently maybe, her French tip manicured nails too long perhaps, and she had typed it without looking because her eyes were too busy being glued to what was happening in the room, the confrontation between Preston and Cochrane. Cynthia Jennings was not a person who made mistakes. She was type A, an overachiever, a perfectionist, and the thing that was pissing her off the most at the moment was that she really had meant to double-check the damned email addresses before sending. 
This was sensitive information. She knew that. Liability-wise, it was the smoking gun, the one that pointed the finger of blame right back to the flag board. It was the proof that they had been fracking illegally, that they were about to cause a disaster and loss of life that was unimaginable, that they knew about it, and that they had been told about the damage and agreed to sit on the information and do nothing. It was information that Eric Cochran had just killed a man to suppress, and she had let it slip. She had transposed a number, typed in a three instead of a six, and then when the heat was on and the blood and the brains spattered the boardroom door, she had flinched the cursor over the send button. With a little reflexive curl of her fingers on the mouse, she had clicked it, and the sensitive information had been leaked. It didn't matter that it hadn't been her fault, not really. Once the leak had been made, Mr. Cochran would kill her. She knew this without having to be told. She'd been familiar with the way Flag operated since childhood. Her rage was a quiet thing, an internal toxicity that thrummed through every fiber of her being. It was not fear-based, per se, or the kind of rage that she she thought of as lowbrow, as in the kind of rage that common people experience. It was the kind of rage that was unique to the upper echelons into which she had been born, the rage of the entitled when they don't get their way, the kind of rage that had nothing, sorry, the kind of rage that nothing soothes better than browsing through the personnel rosters of the companies that one owns and selecting employees at random to terminate without severance or justification because the thought of them returning home Bewildered and dejected to an unsuspecting family helped to mitigate that rage, and this time she had no one to direct it to but herself. She stared at that email in her sent folder, glaring at that mistyped numeral, that three that should have been a six. How dare that three not be a six? She leaned her elbow on the table, her chin on her hand, and tapped her perfect French manicured fingernails against her teeth rhythmically, her teeth bared like an animal's, and she thought about what she was going to do. Containing the leak was her first step. She opened up a search engine, typed in the offending mistaken email address, and hit enter. The results came up immediately. Jenna Walters, Genwall 313, Walter Jennings, Genwall 316. Of course, they would choose the same handle differentiated only by the numerals at the end. She wanted to scream. Instead, she clicked on the link, and the photo of a smiling, attractive woman with long, dark hair came up. It was the webpage of a town called Mount Bridges. Cynthia squinted. It appeared that this Jenna was the mayor. Great, Cynthia said with an eye roll. Well, there was only one thing for it. She would call the bitch and tell her to delete it threaten her if she had to, because that was how you got things done in Cynthia's world. She scrolled down the web page for the contact info and found the woman's cell phone number listed right there in plain sight for anyone who wished to get a hold of her. How quaint, Cynthia seethed, and then dialed it. Jenna still held the phone in her hand when it rang. She was still staring at the slideshow, sickly enthralled at the horrible images it contained the CN Tower, standing knee-deep in water, 
the Hamilton Harbor, with its refineries gone dark, the flames gone out forever, the grain belt of southwestern Ontario, submerged, lost to the annals of history forever, gone, the scurling flotsam of debris and miasma of filth clouding the once beautiful clear blue waters, the city of Detroit, the GM Tower, tilting, half submerged into the river, the Ambassador Bridge broken into sections, some emerging from the water on a 45-degree angle, collapsed. The phone rang in her hand, jolting her as though a snake had bitten her. It snapped her out of the shock she was experiencing. Unknown caller, it said. She felt a pall of fear wash over her and looked around at the others, who were still staring at the television and talking in hushed voices about the disaster that was unfolding in Wyerton. They had no idea of the private hell that Jenna had found herself in. She stood up and walked to the window. Taking a deep breath to compose herself, she answered the phone. Hello? Listen, you small-town whore. That information was sent to you in error. Delete it. Delete it, or I'll have you killed. The cold hand of fear traced its fingers down Jenna's neck. Who is this? Her voice was shaking. She fought to control it. Never mind who it is. I know you have the slideshow. Now delete it. I will have you killed. You hear me? I mean that. You might think you can run from me, but you can't. You have something that doesn't belong to you. And if you don't delete it now, right now, I swear to God, I will hunt you down and kill you before the day is out. You read me? Jenna heard the rage in the woman's voice. There was no doubt in Jenna's mind that the woman meant what she was saying. She called upon a mantle of calm from somewhere deep inside her. Game on, was the thought that went through her. Cynthia, is that you? You're the one who sent it to me, right? So it's true then, is it? Your fracking, the Great Lakes region, your greed is going to cost millions of lives, destroy one of the world's most important fresh water supplies, and you're calling to threaten me because you don't want anyone to find out? Conversation in the room fell silent. Jenna glanced at the others over her shoulder, aware that they were listening, but she pressed on. It's not too late. You can still tell the authorities. You can still save lives. Warn people. Get them out of harm's way. You can do that much at least, can't you? Silence on the other end. Jenna felt a hard thing snap into place inside of her like a dead bull. This was the turtles all over again, and she was more than mad herself. In fact, she was suddenly furious. Cynthia snapped. Listen, bitch, the last person that got a hold of this information who shouldn't have is already dead, and you will delete it, or you will be next. There was a click, and then the dial tone sounded. Jenna looked at the phone in her hand. She realized she was breathing hard. Her heart beat thundering in her ears. She was that furious. She turned and saw that they were all staring at her. Vic and Deb, Mary, Jay Marksman, all of them looking at her with worried faces, and she willed her hands to keep from shaking. She'd had enough of corruption this morning. She looked at Jay. Can I cast to this TV? 
from my device. Um, yeah, he stammered. You should be able to. He swallowed. You okay? Nope. She handed him her phone. Set it up. Do it now. I've had some information sent to me. We're going to watch it now together, and then we're going to post it online. You think you can set that up for me? On it, Jay said. He snapped into action, and a moment later had the slideshow playing on the flat screen. All right, folks, I'm going to leave it there for today. Uh, next up, we are going into Chapter 4, and my aim is to do that recording tomorrow. So um, wherever you are listening from, I hope that you are having an excellent day. And uh, like I said at the top, um, if you would consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it that with anybody else, that might be interested or just need some company to listen to on a lonely afternoon, that would be appreciated. Stay free. God bless.